Good morning. Uh, the scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Numbers, chapter 11, verses 4 through 6 and 10 through 15. It's also printed in the center of your bulletins on page 6. The rabble with them began to crave other food, and again the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost, also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but, ma but this manna. Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance to their tents. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on an oath to their ancestors? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you are going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me if I have found favor in your eyes and do not let me face my own ruin. Buenos días. La lectura de hoy viene del libro de Números, capítulo 11, versículos 4 al 6 y 10 al 15. Al populacho que iba con ellos le vino un apetito voraz. Y también los israelitas volvieron a llorar y dijeron, ¿Quién nos diera carne? ¿Cómo echamos de menos el pescado que comíamos gratis en Egipto? También comíamos pepinos y melones y puerros, cebollas y ajos, pero, pero ahora tenemos reseca la garganta y no vemos nada que no sea este maná. Moisés escuchó que las familias del pueblo lloraban, cada uno en la entrada de su tienda, con lo cual hacían que la ira del Señor se encendiera en extremo. Entonces, muy disgustado, Moisés oró al Señor. Si yo soy tu siervo, ¿por qué me perjudicas? ¿Por qué me niegas tu favor y me obligas a cargar con todo este pueblo? ¿Acaso yo lo concedí o lo di a luz para que me exijas que, me lleve en, que lo lleve en mi regazo como si fuera su nodriza y lo lleve hasta la tierra que les prometiste a sus antepasados? Todo este pueblo viene llorando a pedirme carne. ¿De dónde voy a, voy a, sacar, a sacarla? Yo solo no puedo con todo este pueblo. Es una carga demasiado pesada para mí. Si este es el trato que me vas a dar, me harás un favor si me quitas la vida. Así me veré libre de mi desgracia. Well, we have another special treat this morning and uh, the guest preacher that we have uh, preaching for us today. And that's uh, Reverend Mike Park, uh, associate pastor at Grace Downtown within our network. And uh, Mike is not only a gifted preacher, teacher, and pastor for sure, but also a friend. And so it's a joy to be able to share this morning with him, uh, but also to share him with you. If you perhaps don't know him, if you've been a part of our church, you're getting to know him. Uh, but if you don't know him, I encourage you to please greet him afterwards, uh, not only with gratitude, but to get to know him as a person, as a brother, and as a man. Uh, but Mike, thanks so much for being here and uh, a joy to share this morning with you. Uh, so why don't you come on up. Should I pray for you? 
Let me, let me pray for you. Come on up, and we'll do this this way. But let's, let's welcome our brother together. <laughs> let's pray together. Father, it, it's an amazing thing the way that you uh, pour your supernatural, even eternal grace to us through finite means, like people, like words. So it's an incredible thing to think that even what we'll share together over the next th few minutes through Brother Mike really might be a way in which you might change our lives. In fact, that's what we ask you to do, and that you would use your word powerfully, that we would hear your voice, that you would be present, that you would uh, use this brother in all his insight into scripture, but also his life and his own personal faith, that you would gather up every possible resource and deploy it across this room to hearts that are hungrier for you than we dare admit. So come and feed us, Lord Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. You guys awake? It is the last Sunday of 2015. Can you believe it? Uh, year has already gone by. I remember praying for 2015, sort of... Uh, waiting to see what God would do in this coming year, and uh, it has already come and gone, and now we await the arrival of 2016, and it's always encouraging for me to sort of turn that calendar uh, over to a new month, to a new year, because it means we're that much closer to his second coming. As we have celebrated Advent in remembering his first coming, we also await his second coming, and that's what this season is all about. And even though Advent has come and gone, we're not lighting the candle anymore. We treasure the message and the hope and live in anticipation of him who is to come. Uh, so this, se this season uh, means a lot to me, and uh, especially because uh, the Redskins won yesterday. <laughs> it's been a season of waiting as well. Uh, finally, we've, we've clenched our division and get home field advantage. Now, we'll see what happens. But uh, no guarantees, right? But at least we made it. And uh, I'm just thankful to be a part of this ride. <clears throat> I thought today that we would spend some time uh, doing two things, looking back at 2015 to really give thanks for the ways that God has poured his mercy uh, into our lives, but also to look ahead with hope, knowing that his promise is true. And in order for us to do that and do that well, we have to avoid these two common mistakes, pitfalls, which get the best of us, even Christians from time to time, and really keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And so that's where we're headed uh, this morning together. Um, growing up, I don't know if you know this about me, but I was a big NASCAR fan. Any NASCAR fans here? No? <laughs> Come on. No, that's, well, it's all right. I get it. Now, this is before NASCAR became mainstream when Dale Earnhardt Sr. used to drive the blue and yellow Wrangler car. So this is back in the 80s. I used to be like full-fledged NASCAR Car holder, no, no, we didn't have that, but I really loved NASCAR. 
And uh, in NASCAR, you need at least three key ingredients for success. One, you need an efficient pit crew, right? Guys who can put in gas, change tires, all of that stuff. But during the week, to tweak the car so that it would run at an optimal level on the track, be it short, medium, or it's a large track. And you need also a, a perfectly tailored car. You can't take one car that succeeded in a short track and hope that it would succeed in a super speedway because it's different. You gotta utilize different strategy and therefore the car has to look a little different. And of course, the driver. Now the driver takes on the bulk of the responsibility because the pit crew, you, they have like 10 seconds to change all four tires and refuel the car, right? The pit crew, right, that's what they do. The mechanics, they're tweaking on the car throughout the week, but it's the driver on the day of that has, bulk of, that has the bulk of the responsibility uh, to make sure that the car is running and running well. And if you're heading into a curve going like 180 plus miles per hour, you have to be mindful of this chemistry, this magic, right, between the car and the track, right? It's a NASCAR language for finding the groove, as they say. But at no point in the race can the driver afford to look back at where he was or forget where he is going. Dale Arnhart Sr. used to toward the end of his career, fall asleep during these races. And it would be only a matter of seconds before he would end up kissing the wall. And, and we understand that in, in, in a high stakes race, as something as NASCAR, that having a specific and clear focus is so important to success. In the book of Hebrews, Apostle Paul exhorts all of us Christians to run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us in a similar way, with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And in order for us to do that well, we need to avoid these two pitfalls. So we'll, we'll talk about the two pitfalls and then wrap our time together as we talk about the solution. But before we actually get there, let me just say quickly uh, about spiritual discipline because really this is what it's all about, right? Avoiding these two pitfalls is another way of saying that Christian life requires rigorous exercise of our faith, which we call spiritual discipline. The temptation is to skip the hard work and settle for what Russ from Mosaic said, the Peter Pan spirituality. We refuse to grow up. We refuse to mature and settle for the elementary teachings, as Paul says. But this really is no spirituality at all. Now, what happened? How do we arrive here where so many evangelicals sort of sign off on the experience of religion, right? Being a part of a religious community, but sort of shun this whole idea of spiritual disciplines. I think it's because of our fear of moralism, which says that we could somehow, by our good works or religion, earn, merit, salvation. But the Bible says salvation is by grace through faith alone. It is not something 
that we could merit. But it's God's gift that he gives to us. And we simply need to come with open hands and open heart to receive this gift, this salvation that God gives. And as we receive this gift of Christ and the salvation that he brings, it is that now our calling to live this out in our practical everyday life. So discipleship is not merit, but it's love. It's our way of expressing our love and gratitude for God who has done so much to reach down to where we were and to bring us to himself, into a relationship with him. And isn't that what Jesus said? Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. It's not about feeling warm and fuzzy, but it's about living our everyday, in the trenches of everyday life, as we seek to love God through our faithful obedience. And adding to this fear is the fallacy that salvation is only the forgiveness of sin. And if salvation were only the forgiveness of sin, then discipleship is just optional. And sadly, many Christians think that's the case, but salvation is really the restoration of our entire self as we conform to the moral beauty of Christ. And the very pathway to this conformity is discipleship. So as we think ahead to 2016, and if you're like me and you like to make commitments, New Year resolutions, however you want to term it, maybe we can think in practical ways how we can express our love and gratitude in this coming year. Not that we will be perfect in these things, but that we would actually step out in faith to not only say with our mouths we love God, but really with our lives declare our love for him. So let's take a look at these two pitfalls, and then we'll round home as we talk about our solution. First pitfall to avoid is longing for the past, longing for the past. Now, in the previous chapter, in Numbers chapter 10, the Israelites leave Sinai after being constituted as a holy nation with a mandate to be a light to the world so that the watching world would see the goodness and the glory of God lived out, right, in this community called Israel. But what's the first thing they do after they set foot out of Sinai and in this journey to uh, the promised land? They complain. They complain about their misfortune. Beginning with verse 4, their complaint <clears throat> takes form. Basically, they're tired of manna. They're so tired of it that they can't even look at it. How often do we take God's grace for granted? Isn't it scary that so many times we pray for things, we anticipate, we hope, and when God graciously answers those prayers and provides for our needs, even in ways that we weren't expecting, that we could, after a while, say, well, thanks, but no thanks. We're always looking for the next best thing. Like the old adage says, familiarity breeds contempt. And the text tells us that they, the Israelites, remembered the fish they had at no cost, along with 
cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. And they began to crave them so much that they wanted to return to Egypt. Then they say to themselves, only if we had meat to eat, it is salvation by meat, right? That somehow meat will solve all of their problems. But they can't have what they want. And so they say, our strength is dried up. They can't continue and won't continue the journey to the promised land until they get meat. It sounds a lot like my children throwing a tantrum at Target because they can't get a piece of candy, right? After all that God had done for them, and after all that God had promised to do, they can't get past fish and vegetables. Now, anyone with an ounce of sanity would think the Israelites were crazy. They're suffering from selective memory. They have forgotten the life of slavery in Egypt. And they're saying that we had fish at no cost, but in fact, they paid for it with their life. They're craving meat and they want to go back, but they're not going to be welcomed in Egypt. And I get that desert life is not easy by any means, but fish and vegetable won't solve anything. Bacon, maybe, but not fish and vegetable. Now, if we learn anything from this passage, we see the power of sin. You see, often we think sin is something we do or we don't do, right? The bad things we do or the good things we fail to do. But sin, as the Puritans would say, is the indwelling power that constantly inclines itself toward evil. And you may think, sin, power, no, I get that we have moral failings here and there. But to say sin is power, isn't that going a little too far? I would say you haven't tried to live according to God's word. When you actually take God's command seriously and to live out the greatest commandment, let's start there, to love God and others well, you realize how powerful sin really is. Just recently, I, I played basketball for the first time in about two and a half years. Prior to that, I was a regular gym rat growing up, always trying to beat my younger brother, you know, younger, bigger brother, who, you know, really good, talented, varsity captain, scholarship guy. And so I, I considered myself to be a pretty good athlete. And I thought, you know, two and a half years, I'm in my 40s, but hey, I'm a pretty good athlete. So I step on the court with a bunch of 20-somethings, right? And I'm, I'm the only one stretching for like 20 minutes. And these guys, before they could even put their shoes on, they're running around, playing, and, and prancing around. I'm like, wow, I, I guess we're not the same. And that gap only grew once I stepped on the court and start playing this game. I kid you not, after like 10 minutes, I thought I was going to black out. <laughs> And I realize that I am not who I was 20 years ago. It's only when you attempt to live out God's word that you see the gravity of sin that resides within us. And if you think that somehow by your good works, your patchwork of religion will save you and deliver you from that thing called sin, you're in for it. We need a savior someone outside of us to speak a good word into our hearts. 
someone who would then come in to our hearts to undo the power of sin and to deliver us from it completely. And we see that in the Israelites. The same Israelites who witnessed the ten plagues. Just, you know, we read through the Exodus story, but imagine if you were one of them. They witnessed the ten plagues. They walked through the Red Sea, heard the very voice of God trumpeted from Mount Sinai. And now here they are, complaining about their misfortune and throwing a tantrum because of fish and vegetables. You know, sometimes all it takes is a harmless thought or an innocent memory to undo us. You know, when we look at ourselves, for some of you, uh, you look at the mess the gospel has gotten you into. You know what I mean? Before Christ, before faith, before you took this thing called Jesus seriously, right? Life was easy. Life was fun. It was simple. But now, the gospel has gotten you in this mess where you have to now struggle to bring about mercy and justice in this city. To love the other as you would love yourself. To forgive those Oh, they know how to press all the right buttons to extend kindness to bad drivers that have, they have no, no place in D.C., but they, they keep coming, right? And it's easy for us to look at all the mess the gospel has made and say, man, it was easier back then. It doesn't end there, right? We have to actually work with integrity, which may actually cost us literally cost us. We have to seek sexual purity and so on and so forth. The list seems to go on and on and on and on. It's easy to say, eh, it was easier back then. It was simpler. And all of a sudden, as you look back at your before Christ days, your life becomes a sports center highlight reel, right? Just one long party. That creates a desire. It fuels a craving in your heart. I see this played out in my children. We moved from St. Louis about two and a half years ago, and uh, even to this day, my children will always say, let's go back to St. Louis. And I ask them, why? Why do you want to go back to St. Louis? And they'll say, well, our house was better. The parks were bigger. The cafeteria food at school was even better. And certainly the baseball team was better. Okay, I give them that. I said, yes, I give you that much. But they always say, let's go back, let's go back. And they're always talking about the house, the park, and the cafeteria food. And I want to say to them, you unfaithful Israelites, <laughs> repent. <No. laughs> but their memory triggers a craving, a longing in their hearts. And all of a sudden, they, they have to have it. You know what I mean? And that craving eventually becomes idolatry. We begin to say, only if. I'll be happy only if I get a better job, if I have a better marriage, if my children behave better, or if I had better, cooler friends, or bigger house. 
look to these things to save us from our plight, but it's really just applying a Band-Aid to a deep, deep issue called sin. And this lie, only if lie has been around since the Garden, garden of Eden and things didn't exactly turn out so well for Adam and Eve. And that's been the case ever since. And once we buy into this idolatry, then we become, we become crippled. The author of Hebrews, again, exhorts us in Hebrews 12, 1, saying, let us throw off everything that hinders and sin that so easily entangles. So the first pitfall we have to avoid is looking back with this longing for the life before Christ or life without Christ. Second pitfall to avoid is forgetting the future. Okay, forgetting the future. Israelites left Mount Sinai with the promise that God would make good on all of his promises. And his promises are good. In the earlier books in the Old Testament, the authors describe Canaan as a land flowing with milk and honey. And these words echo the abundance and pristine beauty of the Garden of Eden before sin. And these good promises weren't just lofty thoughts to capture our hearts, but they came with a guarantee. The repeating chorus in the book of Exodus is, I will. And God even goes further to make, uh, uh, he basically uh, provide uh, an outline for the people of God to live in such and such a way once they get into the promised land. And again, it speaks to the certainty of the promise that God who promised these things will do it. You see, God's promises define our identity, who we are. That he came into the world to love us, to save us. It, it says something about who we are. The temptation is to say that I am my work, I am my marriage, I am my wealth, I am my education. But God's promises say that we are his beloved, his children, his people, his bride. And that should shape how we live on this side of heaven. You see, whether you realize it or not, all of us, we are living by a script, a narrative of some sort. Whether the gospel or the world, okay, we're all living by a narrative. And at the center of it is this vision of the good life. And it's that vision that pulls us. That's what motivates us through the mundaneness of everyday life. It's what gives us meaning sometimes. Gives us strength to go through it. It's the engine that drives who we are and what we do. And God's promises to be with us here, to re redeem all that we are and all that we do for his glory and for our good, ought to say something about how we live our life, how we look at life, how we look at this community and this city. I call this the Korean barbecue effect. When I am certain that I am going to have Korean barbecue that night, that item on my schedule 
shapes how I live my life that day. And I don't even mind skipping a meal or a snack. And I welcome hunger because it's no sacrifice at that point. It's an investment. It means that later that day, I could have more of what I love. And I don't have to constantly go back on my calendar to see if it's still there or to call Korean barbecue restaurant in Annandale to see if they're still open because I know come 8 p.m. that I'm going to have my fill of what I love. And if that thing shapes my outlook of the day and even the way I live my life that day, how much more so God's good promise, both here, now, and in the age to come, should shape how we live our life. But often, our vision of that good life gets hijacked by sin. How does it happen? By bringing into focus these peripheral things. Jesus, who is to be the center of everything we do, all of a sudden, he becomes blurry. And these things, which we call gifts, right, then take center stage, and they become attractive. And we align our heart, our desire, our life, our resources to obtain it. And that's exactly what the Israelites set up for a substitute God, a false Eden, the good gifts of God's provision. And they were stuck. They had one eye in Egypt, all the good things they had, and they had another eye in a future that seemed very bleak, blurry, uncertain. And they demanded that God would somehow meet them there Give us fish. Give us vegetables. Now, this is their story, but in many ways, it hits pretty close to home, doesn't it? We often find ourselves stuck. If you're like me, maybe you look back and you replay some of the narrative and you say, man, it was easier. Or you look ahead and say, well, what happened to God's promises? I know it in my head. But somehow they don't capture my heart the way they should. And so you go through every day, dragging your feet. Hoping that God would somehow meet you. But is that what we are called to? Is this our plight? Are we stuck here until Jesus returns? No. There is a solution, a better way, if you will. And that solution is Jesus. The way we avoid these two pitfalls is to have our eyes fixed on Christ who is a better Savior and who offers a better salvation. If you go back to the text, it's almost scary to see a glimpse of Moses' heart. In one sense, he's not much different than the Israelites who are complaining about their situation. They complained about manna. Now Moses complains about the Israelites. And he says, if this is how you are going to treat me, in verse 15, please go ahead and kill me. 
You see, Moses delivered the Israelites from the bondage of Egypt, but Jesus delivers us from the bondage of sin and death. He goes deep into our hearts to free us from the very thing that holds us captive and saves us from ourselves. Moses broke the power of Pharaoh, but Jesus broke the power of the devil, the evil one, who is always out to get us. And so we can, as we look ahead to the life that God has called us to, be confident knowing that he who is for us is greater than the one that is in the world. You see, Moses wanted to die rather than to carry the people's burdens. But Jesus died to carry the people's burden. Jesus is the better Savior, and in him we have a better salvation. And so what is the solution? How do we avoid these two pitfalls as we think about 2016? And as we think about concrete ways that we could express our love and gratitude, we have to fix our eyes on him. And remind ourselves constantly of this gospel message that Christ is not distant, that he does not care, but he has come into our hearts, our life. And he's beginning the work, and he will finish it one day. But in the meantime, we, all of us, like the streets of Washington, D.C., are under construction. God is doing his work And as we remind ourselves of this message and we allow it to just root, allow it to marinate in our hearts, it gives us hope. It gives us faith. And it deepens our love for Jesus. You know, it's so often easy to treat worship and times with Christ like a pit stop. You're trying to get out of there as fast as you can. But I wonder if we need to, as a people of God, in light of all that God has done, make it a priority to just sit. And I really appreciated what Duke did, just to be in a moment of silence before God and to allow this message to go deep into our hearts. Because without it, we're not going to go very far. Christian life is not just gas up, fill up once, and then you're on your way for the rest of your life. But every day we come and we allow him and his message to take deeper root into our hearts. So practically, let me challenge you, church, as you think about possibly making commitments and New Year resolutions in 2016 to build into your daily and weekly rhythms different ways, individually and corporately, to keep this message front and center and to allow enough time for this message to soak deep into our hearts so that it affects our outlook, our vision of the good life, and it recenters our hearts again on him who came into this world to give himself for us so that as we look to the cross and to the empty tomb, we understand his love and his mercy and his grace for us.
and the hope that we have in him. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your love and your mercy. And so, Lord, as we look back at even this past year, we are grateful. We're grateful for all that you have done. But as we look ahead, even to the year to come, we are thankful for all that you will do. And I pray, God, that you would give us faith so that you will always be in focus and that we would align our hearts, our life, Lord, to you and to the things that you have called us to. In Christ's name, amen.